0: The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2010 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana, and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For other audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at FOI.org. Did you ever have a Kodak moment? Now that's an age-oriented question. Because... I come from the age of a camera with film in it. Uh, Most of you do as well. And there was a wonderful commercial that Kodak did uh, talking about Kodak moments. And uh, a Kodak moment is one of those moments where a rare one-time event is captured. It's captured on film. It's interesting, at least in our house, maybe in yours, I remember one time I was specifically looking for something, and I went in the closet to look for it. And as I'm rummaging through the closet, uh, I came across a shoebox. That wasn't what I was looking for, by the way, but I took out the shoebox, opened it up, and started to go through old pictures. Well, an hour and a half later, forgetting what I was looking for, I saw all these moments. Moments in my family's history. Uh, my great, my, my grandparents' history, there were old pictures that were there. And so you might be aware of a Kodak moment. And there's all kinds of different Kodak moments that we have. They, they define uh, a specific time period. They're etched in our brain. They are the kind of things that we say, oh, I remember that. Maybe you have a Kodak moment in your head. But Uh, remember that first grandchild, or your first child, that birth of the baby, or you took a trip, a vacation trip, or it was your child's first day at school, and you took a snapshot of them getting onto the bus, or graduation, or Little League Baseball, or a great family vacation. All those things are Kodak moments. Well, I believe the Bible has Kodak moments, and I say up there three Kodak moments, the Bible has many more than three, but I've selected three Kodak moments, three events that relate to three individual men as it relates to one city, and those men are Melchizedek, Abraham, and David. And the city, of course, is Jerusalem. Those three men, Old Testament, I like to call it the Older Testament, those three men define that city, and that city still awaits the king to rule and reign in power and glory. But these three men defined that city. The first one is Melchizedek. Jerusalem is the place of Messiah and his ministry, and we're going to look at Melchizedek and see how he fits in. First, who is this person? I can tell you this, if you were to ask an average Jewish person, just an average Jewish person that you might know, and say, oh, I was reading about Melchizedek, can you tell me? What do the Jewish people believe about Melchizedek? The chances are very good. They'll say, who? Now, I'm not picking on my own people. I want to tell you, there are a number of Gentiles who go to church from time to time. And you could say to them, oh, Melchizedek, I read about him in the New Testament. What can you tell me about him? And the chances are, who are you talking about? It's unfortunate But I can probably find you some people who are evangelicals, born-again, Bible-believing Christians, and mention Melchizedek, and they might not know who he is. The writer of the book of Hebrews was kind of admonishing his readers that they didn't know who he was, and they should have. Was he Jewish? Well, we know he wasn't Jewish. Uh, He had to be a Gentile. The reason he wasn't Jewish? There weren't any. There weren't any Jewish people at the time of Melchizedek. Genesis 14 and verse 18, it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand.'" We know Melchizedek was a king, and we know he was king of Salem. That word Salem is where we get Jerusalem, the same city. And this person, who is not Jewish, there weren't any Jewish people, he was a king priest of the living God. Now it's interesting as we come in contact with him that Abraham Tithes to him. Abraham gives him an offering. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. And that's an important thing that we're going to talk about a little later. But melech is the word that's one of those Hebrew words again where you got the spitting. <laughs> melech. Uh, in, in Judaism, we have a very common prayer. Uh, that's used just about for everything. And it goes, Baruch, Atah, Adonai, Eloheinu, Melech. means blessed be thou or praise be thou, O Lord our God, king of the universe. Melech is king. He was king of Salem. He was king of peace. That's what the word uh, s- Salem means. Literally, he was king of peace. Jerusalem. Before there were Jewish people, there was a king-priest who was ruler in Jerusalem. As a priest, we read about, or we know that he's priest of the Most High, it says, El Yom. And so before the Jewish people existed, there was a king-priest of the Most High who was given a tithe by the father of the Jewish people, Abraham. That I want to submit to you, when that happened, when Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, that was a Kodak moment. That is a moment, snapped in time, that we ought to pay attention to. We don't hear about Melchizedek until Psalm 110 in verse 4, where it says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. A priest from the order of Melchizedek is a different order than the Levitical priesthood. Important to know that Abraham is tithing to Melchizedek with, as it were, the Levites in his loins. So they are two different priesthoods. Where we encounter Melchizedek, we don't know a lot about him. We know that Kodak moment, we come to Psalm 110. And we find that uh, there's a person who's coming after the order of Melchizedek, not the Levitical priesthood. The writer to the book of Hebrews in chapter 7 and first 22 verses, you can read it on your own, but he covers a number of issues in those verses. First, he tells us that Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Second, he tells us that he's the king of righteousness. He also tells us he's the king of peace. He says he is without father, mother, or descent. Now, what did he mean by that? Important to understand the context. As as we read Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek comes on the scene, and we don't know anything about him. He comes on the scene. He's a real person. Abraham meets him. In fact, Abraham tithes to him and Melchizedek is gone. We know he's a king, we know he's a priest, but we don't know anything about him. The writer to the book of Hebrews takes that and, in the context, talks about the way that was written and says, Look, this person, in the context, talking about our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Melchizedek, on the order of Melchizedek, where we don't know anything about Melchizedek's past. And we don't, hear, we don't hear, know about his mother, his father, we don't know anything about him. This person, the Lord Jesus Christ, transcends that area as well. He's eternal, and, and he makes that comparison. Neither beginning of days nor end of life. And so Melchizedek is used in a critical way. The Holy Spirit of God uses him, and he's a real person, used in the sense that he, he patterns the future king, priest, and, of course, prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a priest continually. Now, the writer to the book of Hebrews, of course, is writing to Jewish people, uh, writing when the temple was still standing, uh, so they understood about sacrifices and priests and all that, how it has to be continual offering. Oh, no, our king priest, he's a priest forever. He intercedes for us all the time. So that's our first Kodak moment, Melchizedek. The second Kodak moment that I'd like us to look at is Abraham, the place of Messiah, his salvation. Abraham, place of the Messiah, his salvation. Now when we think of Abraham, Jewish people look to Abraham, he's their father. Christians look to Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed. It was counted. It was given to him as righteousness. We look at Abraham's faith, and we say, hey, he's our father. If you've ever been in Sunday school, teach that song, Father Abraham. We sing about him. But it's not just Christians and Jewish people. It's Muslims as well. Abraham is an important person for three major religions in the world today. He's known by Jews, by Christians, and by Muslims. Abraham is a man of faith. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In Genesis 21, Abraham proclaims the true God as El Olam, the everlasting God. Now, When we think of Abraham and a Kodak moment, there were a number of moments with Abraham and Kodak moments, but Abraham, in Genesis 22, God speaks to Abraham, and he says this, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Folks, that's a, that's a biggie verse. For any of you who have sons, children, God is telling you, take your son and offer him up to me. This verse has context, a lot of context, and we want to look at it. The Bible says he rose early. I think I would have slept late that morning. But the Bible says he rose early. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, we have Abraham as a 75-year-old man. He's living in the Ur of the Chaldees. 75 is 75. There's a few of you who are 75 or approaching that, or maybe you've seen it already. Life is kind of stable at 75. You've seen a few years. And so now God is speaking to Abraham, and he tells Abraham to go. And when you read Genesis chapter 12, the Bible says, so Abraham went. That tells you a lot. Abraham was willing to shake his life up in obedience to God, leave what he knew, and unbelievably go to a place he had no idea where he was going. Now, many of you have moved. Some of you have frequently moved. I've moved a few times, but... Probably the hardest move that I ever had to make was when my family were four teenagers. My wife and four teenagers. uh, And we had to move from the Midwest to the East Coast. And I heard it more than once, Well, God might be calling you, but he ain't calling me. Uh, I heard that a few times. Uh, So there I am with my Penske truck, uh, 25-footer, sitting in front of my house. And, of course, people come by, and we're loading up the truck. Where are you going? Well, I knew where I was going. I was going to Philadelphia. Okay, and I told them where I was going and what I was going to do. That that was hard enough, taking 18 years and kind of pulling the roots out of the ground and moving. But Abraham is 75 years old, plus... He has no idea where he's going. He's got his Penske truck packed with no place to go. Can you imagine? But he goes. And a little later in his life, you know, God had made some promises as a result of his faith. Look up in the sky, you see all those stars, that's going to be your seed. Uh, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many people and many nations and all that. Well, he and Sarah were getting on in years. Wasn't looking good for them, as far as fertility is concerned. So, the culture allowed for uh, Sarah to uh, have her handmaid, and they worked out a deal. It's the way we are sometimes with God. He has his way, and we have our way. Well, Ishmael wasn't the promised child. Well, now we come to Genesis uh, chapter 18, and three visitors come to Abraham. And they're welcome, they come in and they say, "Hey, Abraham, next year around this time, you're going to be a dad. Sarah's going to have a baby." <laughs> now look, Sarah was next door. Now, I'm, the text doesn't say it. I'm taking liberty, but there she is, leaning against the cloth of the and listening to what the guests have to say. And when they said that, she laughed. Her husband is approaching. 100 years old she's approaching 90 years old it isn't going to happen she's laughing it isn't gonna happen anybody know what the name isaac means it means laughter oh i could hear it now every time sarah called isaac in for dinner it was a reminder of those three guests Abram had waited 25 years for that son. 25 years. And now, flash forward to the present in Genesis chapter 22, and God is saying to him, Take your son. The one you know you've been waiting for for 25 years, the one that's now a teenager that you've watched grow and looking forward to adulthood, I want you to take. That son, and I want you to offer him up to me. That means 40 years has passed, at least 40 years. And the 75-year-old man of faith was exactly the same as the 115 or so year man of faith, Abraham rose early. What a picture we have as Isaac is with him, his teenage son, uh, Isaac is with him, and he had a question about the sacrifice. Normal question, okay. Dad, I got the wood. I got the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham answers Isaac and said, God will provide the sacrifice, my son. And so it tells us in Genesis 22 and verse 13 and 14 that Abraham built an altar. And it doesn't tell us how it happened. But I think it's fair to kind of paint the picture. You have a 15-year-old or so son and a 115-year-old or so father. Now, if Isaac wanted to, do you think he could have outrun his dad, run away, might have been able to overpower him? I don't know. But that's not the picture we have. It's not the picture we have in Genesis at all. The picture we have in Genesis is that the Son is following the Father. And by the way, in the Middle East, even in America a little bit, but in the Middle East, the Father is next to God. I mean, the the Father, whatever He wants had better happen. The sons fall in line. That's Middle Eastern thinking. That's the way it is. And so the picture is Isaac has all the things necessary for the sacrifice except the sacrifice. And so there's Abraham, there's Isaac. We have a willing son who mounts on the altar, probably with little if no assistance at all. Now the text doesn't say that, but that's the picture that we get. And so in Genesis 22 and in verse 13 and 14, Abraham built the altar... God stopped him from sacrificing Isaac, and in his stead, a ram is caught in the thicket. And so Abraham called that place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. And I'd submit to you that God was not interested in Isaac's life nearly as much as he was interested in Abraham's life. And what a picture that is for us as things happen in our life. And here, Isaac, Isaac seemed like he was going to die. He was the tool that God was using in Abraham's life. But what was happening was really happening to Isaac. And so God has his purposes. So I don't know what you're going through. We all go through stuff, don't we? In Yiddish, we have a word called tsuris, tsuris means trouble. And I would say all of us, to one degree or another, experience tsuras. The question always is uh, whether you're a believer and follower of the of Lord or not. How could, if there's a God, how could he do this? How could he allow this? That person is nice, that person is good, whatever. The Bible has many answers for that. Certainly you can go to the book of Job. We marvel at Job, the story that Job didn't know but that the reader knows. I love that story at the very beginning because we know what's going on. Job's the one living the life at the time, but we know what's going on. There's a a battle. God is dealing with Satan. Satan's asking what he can do. God's allowing him to do it. And it's Job that's the punching bag. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wow, those those are amazing words. And maybe some of you have actually prayed those words to God as you've gone through your surus. Isaac had some surus in his life. And so, in Abraham, we get a glimpse of the place of Messiah seen at Calvary. The picture of Abraham with Isaac is the picture of God the Father sending God the Son in obedience. And there's the Lord Jesus Christ, as Isaac, as it were, willingly offering himself as the sacrifice. The Father is willing to... Abraham was willing to do it. Isaac didn't fight his father. God the Father sends the second person in the Godhead who sets aside... His uh, the, the prerogatives of his deity. That's a whole different topic. But we believe in one person. We believe that God and man merged into one person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. 100% man, 100% God, and willingly goes to the cross and suffers for us. Well, that's a second Kodak moment, right there in Jerusalem. The third Kodak moment, the place of Messiah and his glory. In First Chronicles 11 and verses 4 to 9, it says, And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jabus, where the Jebusites were the inhabitants of the land. But the inhabitants of Jabus said to David, You shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said, Whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first and became chief. Then David dwelt in the stronghold. Therefore they called it the city of David, and he built the city around it. From the Milo to the surrounding area, Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. In 2 Samuel, chapter 5, in verses 6 to 11, it says, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. They were pretty confident that uh, they were going to have no trouble defending their city, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold, called the city of David, and David built all around from the Milo and inward. And so David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. David was the one to leave Hebron, after he was there about seven years, conquered the Jebusites, setting up Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. That's significant, by the way, even today. You could go to Israel. I was just there in March, and you could go to a brand new place that they found. It's it's not brand new. It's been around there for a long time, but they actually found the walls of the Jebusites. You can see it for yourself. That's significant because you will hear on the news or read in the paper that many scholars of uh, the Palestinian people, of the Arab people, Muslim people, say there is no presence in Jerusalem, particularly on the Temple Mount, of anything at all that was Jewish. Nothing. They deny it all. Interesting that you can read it in the Bible about the Jebusites, and now you can actually see the walls of the Jebusites there. And so, in Second Samuel chapter seven and uh, verse 16, it says, "And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, your throne shall be established forever." This was God speaking to David after he took from the Jebusites, conquered them, set up the kingdom, and yet there's a promise concerning that city. That it's not just going to be where you reign and rule, David, it will be forever. There will be a greater son of David to rule literally in Jerusalem. Now, throughout the week, you're going to hear people from this platform, I'm sure in the various messages that we have, we believe that Jesus Christ is coming back physically and bodily, and he's going to Israel. He's specifically going to a city. His feet are going to touch down in the Mount of Olives. He's going to walk down that valley and then up through, from the Kidron Valley through the Eastern Gate. And oh, by the way, maybe one of the reasons it's been 2,000 years is because God's trying to figure out what to do. I don't know if you know that the walls, the Eastern Gate is bricked up. And there's a cemetery there. And of course, Jewish people aren't allowed to go through a cemetery. So, By bricking it up and putting a cemetery there, they've kept out the Jewish Messiah. So I'm sure God's up there saying, I just don't know what to do. (laughs) The Bible does say, the prophet Zechariah says, when his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives, it's going to split in two. The topography of the land is going to change. He's not coming as the Lamb of God. He's coming as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is going to come in power and authority. He's coming in such a way that drove his three disciples to the ground when they were at the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember? Dropped down to their knees, put their face to the ground, and were quaking in their boots. Can you imagine when he comes back in power and authority with the saints behind him? So if you don't know how to ride a horse, don't worry. You'll be riding one, but you won't have to take lessons. He'll but speak the word, and all those who are his enemies will melt before him. Look, it was a Kodak moment. David is uniting the kingdom of Israel. There is no kingdom of Israel now, but there will be. And that kingdom is going to last for a thousand years. We think of Jerusalem today as the city of our God. Psalm 48 tells us that. It's the city of the great king. It is uh, the one in which he will utter his voice," Joel says. He will speak from Jerusalem. in that city that the Lord bu- it is the city that the Lord builds up in Psalm 147. And so we see three Kodak moments this evening. The first is Melchizedek. That's the place of the Messiah. We see him in ministry. We see Christ our priest making intercession for us. Every grief, every heartache, every difficult, every blessing that you might have, you can bring to Jesus Christ, who's our intercessor, the one between God and us, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see Abraham in a Kodak moment, the place of the Messiah. We see him as our Savior, Christ our Redeemer. As Abraham was willing In his mind, his son already dead. In its place, a ram caught in a thicket. There's no sacrifices continually anymore, the book of Hebrews tells us. Christ died once and for all. What a Kodak moment, though, that must have been in Jerusalem with Abraham taking his son to Mount Moriah. And then we see David, the place of the Messiah. We see his glory. We see... Jerusalem as the place where the Messiah comes back to. If you remember in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus is taking his disciples, he's leaving. He goes the same direction that the prophet Ezekiel uh, spoke about, where Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. It went from the temple to, Mount, uh, to uh, the Mount of Olives and then went up. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns in power and glory, he's coming from the Mount of Olives and he's going to come back the other way, the glory will return. And those three Kodak moments define that city, the city of Jerusalem, the city that you and I should be praying for according to Psalm 122 and verse 6.